In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, and that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins, for the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. The Gospel passages for the weekday Masses this time of year begin going through John chapter 6, the Bread of Life Discourse. And it's a beautiful text for us to pray with, to try to enter into, and to tease out the implications for our own life. And I thought in our Lord's presence, Lord, in your presence, Jesus, we could start with the end of the text, the result of the discourse. And as we know, our Lord's words were so shocking, were so literally taken, and he didn't correct that literal interpretation, that they caused many of his disciples to stop following him. Jesus talks about eating, and literally the Greek word is like gnawing or chewing on his flesh. And he keeps repeating things like, my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. And so the faith of some of his disciples in him isn't strong enough to overcome this crazy talk, as we would say these days. It's crazy talk. Eat your flesh and drink your blood. This is how John, St. John, describes the result of this discourse at Capernaum. As a result of this, many of his disciples returned to their former way of life and no longer walked with him. Beautiful description, even in a negative context, of our Christian life, Lord. Our life with you, Jesus, is a walking with you. We're not alone in this life. God walks with us. Jesus walks with us, and we walk with him. Jesus then said to the twelve, Do you also want to leave? Simon Peter answered him, Master, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and are convinced that you are the Holy One of God. Perhaps without knowing it, or at least partially without knowing it, Peter confirms the whole Bread of Life discourse. You have the words of eternal life. Jesus just finished teaching this. He who eats this bread will live forever. The bread that I will give is my flesh for the life of the world. And Peter says, yes, you have the words of eternal life. We don't know how this is going to work. We don't know what it's going to look like. We don't know how it won't be some form of crazy cannibalism. But you have the words of eternal life. And that reinforces and confirms and says yes to Jesus' own message about the Eucharist. He who eats this bread will live forever. What an incredible promise. What an incredible promise that our Lord makes to us about the sacraments, about the Eucharist. That eternal life, living forever, is ours for the taking, is ours for the asking. Through the sacraments, especially through baptism and through 
the Blessed Sacrament through communion. And that eternal life, Lord Jesus, is your very own life. Eternal life is resurrection. I think that's important. Sometimes we think of eternal life as simply the continued existence or the continued presence or activity of the soul after death. But the soul separated from the body is not life. That's death. That's the definition of death, the soul leaving the body. That the fact that the soul can continue to exist without the body doesn't mean that the person is truly alive. It just means that their soul is indestructible, it's immortal, it's spiritual. And so therefore, it can't die. It keeps going. It keeps being itself and active. But eternal life, right? Life is being alive. And being alive is not just being a spirit separated from your body. It being alive is being alive, being able to talk and walk and see people and do things and hear and etc. etc. See, use your senses, move around. Life is bodily. Which means eternal life is resurrection. And our eternal life is a participation in the resurrection of Jesus. And that resurrection of yours, Lord, that we celebrate this Easter season, becomes ours through the sacraments, principally through baptism, but then also in a kind of consummating way and in a way that intensifies our participation in eternal life and guarantees it, the Eucharist guarantees our share in resurrection, our share in eternal life. He who eats this bread will live forever. That resurrected life is ours for the asking, it's ours for the taking when we receive communion well, when we meet our Lord in the bread. So Lord, this Easter season is not just a commemoration of a very important thing that happened in the past, or even of a very important thing that continues now because you're still resurrected. Rather, it's a commemoration of an event that we are all wrapped up in. All Christians are participating in the resurrection through the sacraments. St. Paul puts it very clearly. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so too we might walk in newness of life. We walk in newness of life because we've been baptized into his death and therefore rise with him into a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his... For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. I don't know if there are any Protestant theologians praying with us today. I kind of doubt it, but you never know. A podcast can have a reach beyond anything we know or imagine. But we, if we put ourselves in the shoes of a Protestant theologian this time of year, looking at the church's penchant, the church's custom of reading the Bread of Life discourse during the Easter season, we might imagine them complaining, right? Oh, you Catholics are obsessed with John 6. You're obsessed with the real presence. Can't you think of something else to read and reflect on during this Easter season? 
And the answer is no, no, we can't. Because, because there's such a close connection between the resurrection and the Eucharist. As we were just considering Jesus, the Eucharist is our participation in the resurrection. And also, the resurrection is what makes sense of the Eucharist. How is the Eucharist not cannibalism, as critics of Catholicism have levied that, that criticism over the centuries, right? How can we be eating the flesh of Jesus without being barbaric cannibals? Well, it's not cannibalism because it's not a normal body. It's a resurrected body. It's become, it's become what scripture calls a spiritual body. And how did that happen? Well, as, as Pope Benedict XVI points out in a beautiful discourse on the Eucharist and its connection to Easter, its connection to the resurrection, you can find that in a book called God is Near Us. It's a great book of sermons and, and essays on the Eucharist by Benedict XVI. They were all written before he was Pope. And in there, he talks about the fact that in the resurrection, Jesus' body has left behind one of the primary dimensions of being bodily. And so he says, being bodily, we're having a human body, has two sides. Right? There's two kind of dimensions to it. One is that our bodies separate us from each other. Where my body ends, I end in a certain sense. And where your body ends, you end and where my body begins and ends, right? Well, your body can't be in exactly the same place. And so our bodies are kind of a limit of how much we can be together and, and how much we can be united. And further, our bodies can be used to, to further that separation, right? We can run away from each other. We can make nasty faces at each other. We can say harmful words through the body. We can do harmful things to each other through our bodies. And on the other hand, the body is also very beautifully a a source of love, of communion, of unity. I can embrace you with my body. I can be together with you uh, because we're bodily. We can be together in the same room. We We can abide together knowing that we're not alone. We can speak to each other through our bodies, words of comfort, words of assurance, words of love. We can look at each other and smile. We can show each other that we understand each other with our looks and with our gestures because we have bodies. And so the human meaning of the body in this life, right before resurrection, is kind of twofold, right? It separates us from each other, but it also is a means of communion or uniting us to each other. In the resurrection, Ratzinger says, in the resurrection, Jesus leaves behind the body as separation. He leaves behind the body as division by giving his life on the cross and rising to new life. The resurrected body has become only love, has become only gift, has become a pure means of communion, of of communication, of sharing. And that's why it's not cannibalism, right? That's why it shows up as bread, something that can, can be eaten, right? As far as the body's concerned, it's ident- identical to bread, even though 
the substance is Christ or is the body of Christ. And that also explains how and why the church, as St. Paul describes it and the church teaches, the church is the mystical body of Christ, right? How can I be a member of someone else's body? How can I eat someone else's body? Well, only because that body is new, is different, is radically become something spiritual, something uh, something connected to love. It's become a gift for us. And this has amazing consequences, Jesus, for how we should think about our faith, how we should think about our relationship with you. As you yourself put it, Jesus, in, in incredible words, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. And he who eats my flesh abides in me and I in him. And Jesus lives in us because of the sacraments. And we live in Jesus because of the sacraments and especially because of communion. And that's a wonderful thing for us to pray about and to think about. Lord Jesus, give me the faith to think about this well. If I were more aware that you're living in me and I live my life in you, but especially that you're living in, in me, that you're always with me and not far off, not even right next to me, but right inside of me. If I were more aware of that, Lord, what would change? How much more confidence would I live my life with? How much more love would I exercise towards others? How much more patience would I have towards different situations? How much more real, Lord, would you be to me if I were aware, more strongly aware of your presence within me? I don't know if this is the best analogy, but I, it's the only one I have. Um, but I've noticed that people are into movies again about demonic possession. There's a couple out now that, uh, are getting some, are getting some buzz. One is called Nefarious. It's about an exorcism. And the other is, um, called the Pope's Exorcist. Russell Crowe, famous actor, of course, uh, plays Father Gabriel Amorth, who was an exorcist in Rome. And the thing about exorcism is, or the thing about possession, right, is if you meet a, de a demon, right, if a demon kind of manifests itself to you in a way that is real and kind of visible. Well, sin and evil is no longer theoretical. It's no longer abstract. Right? You are in touch with a kind of incarnate form of evil. And it's powerful because it's personal. And so it has a will. It has an intellect. It has a very deformed but a very real personality. It has initiative. It's doing things. It's trying to get things done. It's messing with you in different ways. And so if that happens, you know, the whole idea of sin is no longer like um, abstract. It's no longer um, ethereal. Like, oh, Father, you know, bless me, Father, for I've sinned. Uh, it's been six days since my last confession. I can't think of anything. Okay, yeah, I had uh, six Oreos instead. 
of uh, three. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. Now, if you are in contact with an, a fallen angel, uh, an evil spirit, uh, evil is very real and, and very powerful and very present. Well, on the flip side, this is the reality. We don't feel it, but we should believe it, and believing it should be enough. This is the reality of the presence of, of goodness in our life, the presence of Jesus in my life, the presence of God the Father, the presence of the Holy Spirit, the presence of Our Lady, the presence of my guardian angel. Goodness is not an abstraction in my life. Love is not an abstraction in my life, an ideal. I'm loved by people. And people have intelligences and people have wills and people have power and people have initiative and people are present and they're trying to help. And above all, Jesus, this is you for me. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him, right? And I in him. Jesus lives in us. And so St. Therese of Lisieux, for instance, would ask Jesus to possess her. She would say, God, possess me. Right? Take over. Right? As a, as a demon would possess a demoniac, right? She wanted to be taken over by God. And obviously God, you know, he respects our freedom. He knows our freedom is good for us. He knows our freedom is a source of merit. He respects our intellect. He wants us to understand things and do things on purpose because we want to. So he's not going to override our will. But I think her desire that to be possessed by God is very beautiful. It's like, well, I know that you're in me. And I want you to be more active. And I want you to be more in charge. I want you to be more a principle of, of activity in my life, the principle of vitality in my life, and not me. Blessed Teresa Demjanovich, if you don't know who she is, she was the first person to be beatified on U.S. soil about 10 years ago or so now. And she also happens to be from my own hometown of Bayonne, New Jersey. And so I have a special devotion to Blessed Teresa Demjanovic. She was a uh, sister of charity and also a great saint, a mystic. And she had this aspiration. She used to say, die, Teresa, live Jesus. Right? Die, Teresa, live Jesus. Knowing that for Jesus to live in her, well, there has to be some self-denial. She had to deny her own willfulness. She had to deny her own inclinations to sin. She had to deny her pride. Die, Teresa. Live Jesus. Jesus possessed me, as St. Therese of Lisieux says. And what is that life, Lord Jesus, that you want to live in us, that you are? trying to live in us. You're abiding in me and we abide in you. Well, what is that supposed to look like? What kind of life does Jesus want to live in us? Well, the letter to the Hebrews tells us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, 
now and forever. Jesus Christ doesn't change. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, now and forever. And so the life that he wants to live in us and the life that he wants to live through our life and the life, Lord Jesus, that you want to inspire in me while you abide in me is the same life that you lived in the gospels, the same life we see in the gospel accounts of your of your life here on earth. Abiding in me, Lord, you want to be among others as one who serves. The way that our Lord describes his presence here on earth. I am among you as one who serves. Abiding in me, therefore, Lord, you want to inspire acts of service, acts of kindness, good deeds. Abiding in me, Lord, you, you have compassion on the crowd. You saw the crowd confused like a like sheep without a shepherd. And you taught the crowds as a response to their confusion. Well, abiding in me, Lord, you want to be rabbi again. You want to be teacher. You want to shed light on people's minds and consciences. You want to give them a path forward that makes sense, that has meaning, that's true. Abiding in me, Lord, you take compassion on the crowd and you want to teach others. Inspire me, Lord, to share your doctrine, the saving doctrine, to share the gospel, to tell others about you, what you've done for me, what you've done for the world. Abiding in me, Lord, you want to pray, you want to love your Father, you want to spend moments alone as you did throughout the Gospels. You want to look for that solitude where you can be alone with your Father, alone with God. In the morning, while it was still very dark, he got up and went out to a deserted place, and there he prayed. Abiding in me, Lord, you want these special moments of silence. Through my heart, you want to fix your heart on your Father God, to experience his love. Just a few days ago, we had a description of Jesus, of his own relationship with the Father. He said, the Father loves the Son and has put all things in his hands. What an incredible line, so, so simple, but so helpful. The Father loves the Son, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, telling us very simply and beautifully, about the Father's love for him. The Father loves the Son. And the Father loves us because it's the, we have the same Father. Jesus says, when you pray, say, Father, who art in heaven. When you pray, say, our Father, who art in heaven. Jesus makes God our Father. And then he tells us, the Father loves the Son. The Father loves his children and has put all things into his hands. And that's something that we access through prayer, through faith, but especially through prayer. Abiding in me, Lord, you want to love the Father. You want to know that you're loved by the Father. Abiding in us, Lord, abiding in each one of us, you want to redeem the world from the cross. Our crosses are not punishment, even though we can use them in that way to make up for our sins. Our crosses are not merely accidents. God knows everything that happens to us. It all happens ultimately for our good. Our crosses are ultimately chances to unite ourselves to Christ's redemption, to be co-redeemers. As St. Paul says, 
Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. A mysterious passage, but at the same time, Jesus, very clear. Jesus, you tell us all to take up our cross and follow you. And if that cross isn't united to you, if it doesn't have redemptive meaning, well, what would be the point of that? And so St. Paul spells it out very clearly that our sufferings help Christ's redemption. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Our afflictions continue the work of the redemption. They continue the, the redemptive work of Christ's sufferings on the cross. And so we can ask ourselves, Lord, well, how do I accept the cross? How do I process the crosses in my life? And if I remember that, Lord, that you're abiding in me, I can remember that this is something to offer. This is something to struggle with. Of course, Jesus struggled to carry his cross. He had to talk to God about it and ask God for help. And it wasn't easy. Not easy. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a cross. But Lord, like you, ultimately, am I trying to accept it? Am I trying to see it as an opportunity to love, an opportunity to co-redeem, an opportunity to win grace for others, an opportunity to grow in a greater trust, a humility, a trust in you, and a lack of trust in myself? Lord Jesus, live in us. Die, Teresa. Live, Jesus. And what helps Jesus live in our life? What what makes our life a home that's that's comfortable for our Lord, what provides him with all the means and opportunities he needs to be more active in our life? Well, primarily trust, right? primarily faith. If we believe that he's present and we believe that he's going to help us to be better, help us to be holy especially, well then that belief, that trust in him gives him space in our life. It gives him kind of permission to work in our life. When he entered the house, we read in the Gospel of Matthew, the blind men came to him and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. According to your faith, be it done to you. According to your faith, I will be more or less active. So when we think about Jesus living in our heart, Jesus living in our soul, in our life, faith is so important. Faith gives Jesus the space and, in a certain sense, the permission to be more himself, to be more active. And lack of faith does the opposite. This is the gospel's description of Nazareth, which doubted Jesus. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. Because of their lack of faith, he did not do many miracles there. He could not perform any miracles there except to lay his hands on a few of the sick and heal them. And amazed at their unbelief, he went around teaching from village to village. And so if faith gives Jesus permission, gives him space to be more active in our life, even to work miracles, well, lack of faith handcuffs him. Lack of faith puts a kind of cap on his activity. It dampens his liveliness. It dampens his vitality in us. 
And so, Lord, when I think about my life and I think about what's possible and I think about how I should grow, especially in holiness and charity and patience and apostolate and daring and, and all the virtues that you want me to live, well, am I relying on myself? Am I thinking only of my own life? Am I thinking only of my own capacities or my own judgment of my capacities? Am I basing my expectations for the future only on my experience of having relied on myself? Or, Lord, am I remembering that you're with me and you're going to help me? And you're going to help me precisely to be holy, to be more patient, to be more forgiving, to be more daring, to live a, a spirit of service better, to be more cheerful and, and optimistic for my family and my friends and for this world of ours, which needs hope and needs optimism it's kind of like if we made a budget, like if you had to make a budget for the year and you had two checkbooks and one was yours and the other was, I don't know, Bill Gates' checkbook. Well, the budget is going to be much more daring, much more free, much more optimistic and even profligate if you've got someone else's checkbook and if that checkbook has unlimited funds in it. Whereas if you prognosticate your effort and your spending and your budget on your own checkbook, which is, which is much less well backed, right, by resources. Well, you're going to be more pusillanimous, right? You're going to be less magnanimous. You're going to shoot less high. You're going to have less high ideals. You're going to make a less effort. And so, Lord, which, which checkbook am I making my spiritual budget with? Who am I really counting on? Who am I relying on? When I go to pay for something at a store, sometimes at the cashier, I'll pull out my credit card and I'll say kind of hesitatingly, I say, I hope this works. I hope this still works. You know, I found it on the T the other day. The T is the metro here <laughs> in Boston. And the cashier kind of gets flummoxed like they think I'm serious that I just found this credit card and I'm using it. And then I laugh. I say, no, I'm just kidding. It, I think it'll work. It's it's mine. But if we, if we had um, if we had you know Elon Musk's credit card, well, there wouldn't even be a doubt, right? It, of course, it's gonna it's gonna cover it's gonna cover everything. Lord, where's the faith that you want to see in me? What's the thing, Lord, the miracle you want to work in me? The miracle of greater apostolic daring, not caring what people think if I talk to them about God. The miracle of acceptance of some challenge in my life that I'm just not accepting. I just don't trust you with yet. That this person in my life is that way and they have those problems and it's okay for now because we're going to work on it together and that's the way God wants them to be for now and this is part of his plan. Acceptance of my own limitations, my own life, whatever, whatever the miracle is, Lord. If it's a miracle of faith, you're going to help me to live it, to do it. We go to Our Lady. Our Lady lived with Jesus inside of her, from the Annunciation to the birth of our Lord. And so she knows how to do it, and she can teach us how to make our own bodies even, and our own souls, our own lives, fitting and worthy and free, free spaces for Jesus to be himself. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations which you have communicated to me in this meditation. I ask your help put them into effect, my Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.